0: Hi, everyone. Before we start the show, I wanted to ask that if you like what we're doing here, you might consider donating to keep it moving onward and upward. We have a Patreon at patreon.com backslash hegelbon and a PayPal at paypal.me backslash Hagelbon. $5 at Patreon will get you bonus episodes, but even a dollar helps more than you can imagine because no cartridge is funded by listeners like you. Thank you. In today for a solo podcast, uh, I wanted to start off though by saying that this Saturday we're going to be doing a live show in New York at Caveat NYC, and you can buy tickets still. We still have tickets, it's gonna be really fun. Uh, we're gonna have uh, Scott Benson uh, at Bombsfull. You know him from Twitter, you probably know him more as uh, one of the co creators of Night in the Woods. Uh, Scott and I are going to be playing games and talking about them as we play them with the audience and with each other. Uh, we are going to also be talking about, uh, his work. We're going to have a and a, we're going to talk about aesthetics. We're going to talk about the topics of this particular podcast you're about to listen to. It's going to be really, really good. And I really encourage you to buy tickets while you still can. It's $12 right now, 15 at the door. Um, you can find tickets by going to bit.ly backslash no cartridge Benson Um, Or just search "Caveat NYC no cartridge, and you should find it there as well. Uh, If you're a patron, uh, be sure to check the Patreon page. uh, Scoop around a little bit. There is a special patron code for cheaper tickets um, that you can uh, take advantage of. So uh, I'm really excited to see you all there. I'm really excited to uh, do a live show. I think it's going to be really fun. So uh, buy your tickets. Come to New York. Uh, You know, there's good stuff there, too, besides the show, I guess. Uh, Just don't go to any of the the various sports teams there. They're all... uh, They're all degenerates. All right, so uh, (laughs) I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, this issue that's been going around quite a bit, um, particularly in terms of Rockstar Games and the upcoming Red Dead Revolution 2. God, thinking of Dance Dance Revolution. Red Dead Redemption 2. Excuse me. Um... Of course, the first Red Dead Redemption was like this massively successful game, a super uh, deep open world uh, Western with an affecting story. Um, it's kind of an impressive um, uh, synthesis of several genres. This is around the time Rockstar is really kind of like experimenting with their work um, in, in, in extreme ways for maybe the first time. So like they really um, cut their teeth on Grand Theft Auto. And then moving into some of their, you know, post-massive uh, success world, you know, like it's not, they don't go back to the roots of kind of shock stuff necessarily in like Manhunt or um, anything. They go Max Payne, uh, kind of noir game. They do Bully, a sort of like um, experimental school game. They do uh, L.A. Noir, of course, which is kind of uh, piggybacks off Max Payne, and then they... Um, they thematically, though not plot-wise. And then there's Red Dead Redemption, which is just, I, I think in a lot of ways, uh, really stands on its own because there aren't many Western games anymore, right? Um, early on, I suppose there were some. Uh, there is the noxious and terrible Custer's Revenge. Um, there is also, although I, I to call that a game or a Western is probably a stretch. Um, there's also, of course, like uh, side-scrollers like Tin Star, Um, There's Lethal Enforcers, uh, there is the earlier Red Dead uh, Revolver, and uh, Call of Juarez. Um, You know, like there are Western games, but I think in the world of open-world gaming, uh, Red Dead Redemption is really, it stands on its own. Um, And as a result, people have a lot of very strong feelings about it and are really looking forward to the sequel. Um, By all accounts, it sounds like it's going to be a fun game. I'm going to play it. I I pre-ordered it ages and ages ago, so you know, before the topics of this podcast were talked about. And I feel like it's my responsibility to play it as uh, the purveyor of this particular podcast. But one of the things about Red Dead Redemption 2 is that it is massively, massively detailed, right? Um, Heather Alexandra of Kotaku pointed out of her, in her Assassin's Creed Odyssey review that there's this, um, hmm, th- this... Massiveness of scale that's coming in these uh, open world games that in many ways troubles us, right? Like makes us makes us very troubled by the fact that there are people making these games and they're making them at this breakneck pace and under these like under this pressure to produce profit to produce a perfect game uh there's review bombing there's all this stuff and plus on top of it all there are studios instituting crunch time which is nothing new but of course in software dev crunch time simply means it's the equivalent of the busy season if you're an accountant um you have to work 70 hour weeks you have to get no overtime um and there are very few uh very few worker protections in place as, as concerns crunch. Um, and unlike being an accountant, most job, most gaming jobs, most dev jobs are, um, uh, Contract-based or or uh, uh, precarious in a way that say like a a big time accounting job is not right. You're gonna you're gonna stay on uh, after the fact uh, into non-busy season. Whereas once Red Dead Redemption Two is done, you might not have your contract with Rockstar renewed, right? And so there's a lot of precarity. There's a lot of worker abuse. There's a lot of sleepless nights and stress and just intense physical and mental anguish over you know adding black bars into games, to make it more cinematic or adding roots, uh, root structures that are different onto different uh, plants. As I was saying with a friend earlier today, it's hard to tell why any of this should matter. Right. Um, but this has all been, I mean, this is all background for any of you who aren't like immersed in the video game uh, <laughs> journalism, uh super sphere, because this has all been hashed out pretty much, um, pretty much completely by anyone else. Um, the, uh, the sense of outrage over this has been kind of fluctuating. Um, on one hand, you get the initial uh, frustration of hearing about the hours that the Rockstar uh, devs had had to put into it, thinking hearing about like the seventy-hour weeks they were pushing out, and of course the fact that we learned all of this because uh, you know Rockstar CEO bragged about it in uh, in a release to um, talk about Red Dead Redemption Two. Um, and then there's the 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 kind of like pushback to the pushback where people say, well, crunch is the thing in every, uh, sphere of gaming and, and, and dev production. And then the pushback to that pushback saying like, well, this is exceptional. And it sort of like speaks to the you know growing mega game uh, phenomenon and so on and so forth. Um, and at this point, you know, Kotaku, Polygon, Gamasutra, uh, uh, you know, rock, paper, shotgun, giant bomb, all these places have, um, uh, whether or not all of those are still in existence or not, I'm sorry, I just realized I don't know if Rock, Paper, Shotgun's is still producing uh, content, uh, but, um, all of them are, uh, are saying something about this, right, um, and my addition to it is certainly not going to, my addition to it is certainly not going to add anything on the ground, right, um, Jason Schreier's, uh, analysis of it, uh, sort of brought together via interview is worth reading. Um, it's, it's flawed in some ways that I'm happy to talk with him or you about, um, online or via email or Twitter or whatever. Um, but I think, um, it's the best we have so far and it's kind of interesting and, and worth reading. Um, that said, I kind of have a different approach to it. One of the things that I thought of immediately when I was first reading the discourse on Red Dead Redemption 2 and The Crunch was was that it reminded me so much of, uh, the Academy. It reminded me so much of academia. And in fact, what I do now, which is, um, sort of my, my, uh, non no cartridge job, uh, which, you know, is, is, is either my main job or my not main job given, given the day, I kind of have a job A and a job, a, uh, subprime one. Um, but in lecturing, uh, particularly non-tenure track work, you end up with a, uh, a constant workload that is added on without too, too much extra financial benefit. Um, Although every financial addition really, really matters because the pay is fairly low. Now I'm not calling out my particular school here. This is across the industry. Um, Where I work is no different than anywhere else. And in fact, they really do treat people fairly well where I work. So I have no complaints about where I work. I won't even name it, but this is across the industry. Lecturers are not very well paid. They exist on contractual terms, and oftentimes the only way to make enough money to make it work is to put in what would be called crunch time, which is to say, instead of teaching two classes a semester as someone in a non someone in tenure tra- tenure um, track teaching might do, uh, you know, two or three classes and then um, one semester, and then two or one the next. A lot of tenure track professors have a two two load or a three two load or a, a three three sometimes, um, but very rarely. Will they teach four classes a semester and certainly not both semesters in a row? Some lecturers, however, will teach five, five, even if they have to take on multiple classes at multiple schools. And so at that point, you're looking at someone making the equivalent of what hourly rate should be, you know, teaching two classes or something there. Um, And they're teaching instead uh, five or six. Right. And so you're talking about 70 hour weeks with very little uh, financial remuneration, Uh, You're talking about grading and hoping that you make it by the deadline and having disappointed consumers and disappointed bosses. If you don't, it's very, very similar. Now, obviously, these two things are different. Um, Dev work and teaching are not the same thing. Uh, These are apples and oranges. And of course, you can make the argument, and and many have and many should, that uh, development is absolutely a different animal, um, that every industry is a different animal. And in fact, organization and labor rights should be, um, individual. Like you should basically not try to compare teaching to dev or machine working to dev or whatever, that you should have like a gamers, uh, game makers union that focuses on game making. Uh, Fine. That's fine. Um, that said, it's very interesting to see the ways in which crunch is used as a um, modern term to talk about what uh, Pierre Bourdieu calls the restricted field and how the restricted field is being gripped onto so tightly even as we've completely lost it um, under uh, contemporary capitalism. So what is a restricted field? And what is Bourdieu's, as I found in one, uh, described in one uh, analysis of it, probably useless, analysis of culture. I don't think Bourdieu's analysis of culture is, uh, useless. I think it's good. Um, I will say that it is complex. And so I wanted to read a short passage and get a sense of what's going on here. And then just have a short reflection on it. Cause I think it's a useful perspective that is not really being brought into the fold. Right. Um, so Bourdieu says this in his essay, the field of cultural production, it's available in, um, uh, the book called the field of cultural production put out by a uh, Columbia long time ago, a uh, fairly good, co- fairly good uh, edition of, um, board essays. Uh, Nicholas Brown has another, uh, edition that I think is also worth reading, but it's good stuff. Uh, this is kind of the classic one. Uh, this is on 52 and 53 of that, um, book, and it's discussing Zola and, um, uh, Balzac and, and, you know, basically the, um, the, the sort of like the fact that social age, this is in a quote, uh, the fact that, uh, social age is largely independent of biological age. So like, uh, Zola is born in 1840. Um, and he's recognized, he has recognized disciples, um, were born in 47, 48, uh, 50, 51, and 51. So like, it's not really that much of a disciple, right? Um, it says like, Paul Bourget, one of the main advocates of the psychological novel, is only 12 years younger than Zola. So the question is like, okay, so how is Zola uh, seen as the progenitor of this novel that like someone who was maybe like seven years younger than him (laughs) also is a big deal in? Um, And and it's a good question, right? So um, the paragraphs go like this. This is Bourget's take on it. One of the most significant effects of the transformations undergone by the different genres of literature in this case is the transformation of their transformation time. Um, so Bourdieu thinks about uh, art in terms not just uh, of, of publication and genre and stuff like that, but in terms of fields and, and time. And field often describes space, as we'll see it, sort of like cultural space, but it can also describe cultural time. So think about production not just in terms of objects, but in terms of the time it takes to develop and produce those objects as well. Um, the model of permanent revolution, which was valid for poetry, tends to extend to the novel and even the theater, with the arrival in the 1890s of mise-en-scene, so that these two genres are also structured by the fundamental opposition between, and so this is where he describes that permanent revolution uh, the idea in, um, in uh, uh, the poetry, uh, the opposition between the subfield of large-scale production and the endlessly changing subfield of restricted production. So here's the contrast that we need to understand. There is um, large-scale production and restricted production. Um, Here's the description. It follows that the opposition between the genres tends to decline as there develops within each of them an autonomous subfield, springing from the opposition between a field of restricted production and a field of large-scale production. Let me um, keep going. The way out is through in Bourdieu very much, but just to keep these terms in mind, there is a restricted field, there is a field of large-scale production, and there's this uh, autonomous subfield, right? So think about it like um, uh, a trajectory. Uh, From least obscure to most obscure, it would be uh, large-scale production, restricted production, and then autonomous subfield, right? Basically, getting more and more obscure. Think about it like um, if you ever listen to noise bands uh, or like or like uh, weird heavy uh, rock or whatever. Like you could you could imagine it going from like, oh, you know, I, I got into noise because I listened to some of the uh, I listened to some some of the weird stuff on OK Computer uh, by Radiohead, and then you're like, well, also then I started listening to Wolf Eyes, and then you're like, well, I actually I got this tape that the guy, that some dude in Detroit put out on Eyes label. Um, it's his only tape, uh, but it I, it got mailed to me and it's really good and there are three copies of it, right? Like that's kind of the, the trajectory you're talking about. Um, the structure of the field of cultural production, Bordeaux goes on, is based on two fundamental and quite different oppositions. First, the opposition between the subfield of restricted production and the subfield of large-scale production, i.e. between two economies, two timescales, two audiences which endlessly produces and reproduces the negative existence of the subfield of restricted production and its basic opposition to the bourgeois economic order. So much to unpack. But think about it this way. I'll I'll take you through step by step. The opposition he talks about is the subfield of restricted production and the subfield of large-scale production, which is you know, let's take, let's take, um, novels. We'll just take novels for, for this case. Uh, the subfield of restrictive production might be something like an experimental novel, right? A novel that, uh, mostly is just going to be read by, by academics or by people who are into experimental novels. Maybe it's produced on a small press. Uh, maybe we're not expecting it to sell outside of to libraries or something, but people are excited about it because they're excited about, uh, experimental work. The subfield of um, large-scale production is, uh, you know, like the new Tom Clancy novel or like a bestseller or Oprah's Book Club or whatever. It's not about quality. It's just about what's expected to sell. In large-scale production, we can imagine that profits are imminent. Um, In restricted production, profits are not guaranteed and, in fact, are often not even likely, right? Um, The restricted production is a, and and he points this out, um, this this production, right? The negative existence of the subfield of restricted production and its basic opposition to the bourgeois economic order. What he means by that is the restricted field is produced by way of the large scale field uh, existing and producing profit. You can make uh, think about it like actors saying, like you make a bunch of films uh, that make money so you can make the ones that that you love. Um, You create profit so that that profit can generate Work that doesn't necessarily produce profit. Does that make sense? Like it doesn't have a market necessarily, whereas stuff produced in large scale production has a market instantly. You know it has a market, you produce it because it has a market. Okay, Uh, moving on. Secondly, he says, and we're almost done with the Bordeaux, I promise, but you can find this on Google Books. Uh, Definitely check it out, and you can find it at any given library or whatever, or message me. I probably have a PDF of it somewhere or another, or some link to a a cheap version on Amazon or whatever. Um, My DMs are always open. The opposition within the subfield of restrictive production between the consecrated avant-garde and the avant-garde, the established figures, and this is where we might bring in Zola, and the newcomers, and when we might bring in um, uh, Bourget or Hoismans or uh, Mirbeau or Maupassant, like all of these folks are these sort of like newcomers, as opposed to the the established avant-garde, right? Um, I.e., between artistic generations, often only a few years apart, between the young and the old, the neo and the paleo, the new and the outmoded, etc. In short, between cultural orthodoxy and heresy. Now, this distinction between cultural orthodoxy and heresy is important because this is how we are used to thinking about games. It's also how we're used to thinking about academia. We think about these fields, and I'll drop academia after this, but we think about these fields in terms of who made them and then who is remaking them, right? So uh, Miyamoto um, would be someone that initially would be absolutely in the uh, avant-garde uh, field uh, of of just like um, sort of like the Mount Rushmore of gaming and since gaming itself is considered sort of like secondary or avant-garde or weird right um, uh, uh, Miyamoto would be sort of the Zola of this of this uh, version and then you know you have someone like um, uh, Kojima who would then be seen as the the sort of like avant-garde of the avant-garde uh, pushing the 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 kind of like brightness of Miyamoto into a sort of darker more complicated mold And then uh, he becomes established as avant-garde and you get people like Suda um, and uh, Swery and they push it forward. And then you get people like, and it just keeps going on and on and on and on, right? Um, What's fascinating about this is that it totally does describe how video games work. But we imagine video games as existing within this restricted field. And so we imagine video games as these spaces that should have a kind of justice to them in the way that avant-garde art does, right? It's about the art, it's about the product. We produce this avant-garde art not because we wanna make a million dollars, but because we wanna produce something that's worth seeing. Now, video games aren't that anymore. Maybe in the 80s and 90s they were. We talked to Brian A. ages ago, and and you guys should definitely go check that podcast out, that episode out if you haven't. Um, But when he he talked to us, he said, you know, in, in the 80s and 90s, video games and anime were effectively this way for big corporations just to pump money into a cultural product, right? Uh, effectively like a, a, a sort of like side project thing that might make them a little money, but they expected to sort of take a loss on. Akira, for instance, is is something that was only available when like, yeah, we're making so much money in this large scale field, we'll just pop some money into the restricted field while we're at it, right? Uh, this sort of like unprofitable, uh, you know, time intensive pros- process of making... A, a brilliant anime is uh is just not gonna make as much money as selling electronics, but we're making so much money selling electronics, who cares? Um you know, same thing with video games. Video games are time-intensive, they take a lot of work and a lot of money. And when video games were sort of like the the sideshow of things, that was fine. You know, it was it really was sort of an avant-garde thing where, you know, the the money was coming not from not necessarily from the field of video game production, but from the fields um, surrounding video game production. So, like, generally, like, that's why Sony uh, could make a, a, a new system, or Nintendo could pivot into video games from sort of, like, its old base, um, is a much older company. Uh, Microsoft, uh, 3DOs were were uh, Samsungs, right? Like, or Panasonics, excuse me. Most of the video games we know about are from established electronics companies that branch out a little bit into this restricted field. That is until the current moment when video games are deeply, deeply profitable. And so something like Red Dead Redemption 2 is not existing in the restricted field. Red Red Dead Redemption 2 is absolutely in the subfield of large-scale production. The subfield being video games, the large-scale production being for-profit video games. And as a result, we don't get the same working conditions as we did and the same sort of like... um, concern uh for the employees over the profit as we might have in older games like something like um i don't know like a, a, any sort of cult game right um uh geez like i can't think of a good example but crunch happens in all of in any game that we've enjoyed right crunch has happened but pay worker treatment um the sort of like divorce from a corporate model into a, a a pure art model all of that existed in much stronger ways than it does in this moment where working for rockstar really is working for a corporation it might be the corporation you want to work for just as you know i want to work for an academy and i want to teach you may want to develop games and you may want to create video games which explains why everyone in Rockstar is like super excited about Red Dead Redemption 2. Even if they're complaining about the labor, they want you to play their game. I get that. Like, I don't always love the way I'm treated at my job, but I want my students to learn and enjoy the class. That said, what both myself and those devs are uh, caught between is the realization that, oh, hey, this is actually part of the economy. And the remaining sort of... um, What's the word for this? Uh, romance. Let's say romance, the mystique of working in an artistic field, of a restricted field, right? It's our dream to work here. It's important to work here. There's something more than money at stake here. And that is actually, to me, and you know, let me say, I totally think that crunch and, and working uh, someone a 70-hour week and 80-hour week to get out a video game is not good, I think it's bad. I don't think consumer advocacy works, so I won't tell you to boycott the game or anything, but I do think it's bad. Um, you are you know, as, as Scott Benson pointed out, you're not crossing a picket line to buy the game, so it's a little bit more of a, a question of, like, what you want to do, but truly, like, I don't like it, and I don't think anyone should like it. I think we should work to fix it and work to change it. Let me even say that flat out right now, but... What I think is unique about video games and unique about the Academy, and this is why I connected these two in my mind, and what I think is really something that has been missed, is that video games are using, and and they may not even be consciously doing this as like an evil genius thing. This may, in fact, be what Rockstar CEO thinks is going on at Rockstar, which is that they're creating works of art, and it's a passion project, as opposed to a profit project. And whether or not uh, Red Dead Redemption 2 is a brilliant and smart and artistic game or not. Um, and, you know, I haven't played it yet. I don't know. Um, it is absolutely a project for profit. Number one, right? If the game doesn't make money, people will be fired and the project won't go on. This is not a, a cost. Uh, this is not a cost sink. This is a profit based thing. If there is a subfield of restricted production in video games right now, it's indie games like Night in the Woods, like Dead Cells, like um, Moonlighter. Like, I mean, there's like a million games you could list. uh, Like, um, uh, 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 well, a lot of the stuff at Devolver Digital uh, Minute um, where yes, certainly there's crunch and people doing extraordinarily hard work for very little pay, but that does exist in that other admittedly problematic field of restricted production. Where, yes, you're being ground down, but you're not doing it for profit. You're doing it for something that kind of exists in this weird space allowed by companies that are profiting off of something slightly different than what you're producing. That is to say, you almost could say these are two different commodities, indie games and major studio games. Not because of the content and not because of the polish, but literally because of the politics of production. And as major studios drift more into this pure profit um, model, where in fact, like you need to make money in order to stay solvent um, the, the use of the tropes surrounding like passion and uh, calling and art and stuff like that are going to become more and more um, uh, pernicious going to get more and more people to work long hours for a little pay. Um and it's going to uh grind people down even more. That to me is the biggest risk because I've seen it happen in the academy. It has happened in the academy and you have smart people who are working for nothing uh just because they think it's, you know, they're calling and it. it's the only thing they can do. That could happen in video games very soon if it hasn't already. Um, and that's the risk. And I don't know how to combat that, but I think the first thing that happens is to realize we don't have restricted fields under this version of late capitalism. Almost everything is profit-driven, and certainly everything in a major company is. If you want to find a restricted field in gaming right now, it's indie gaming. And if Rockstar was ever the avant-garde, it is no longer even the established avant-garde. It is a field of large-scale production, as Bourdieu would say. All right. Well, I'll leave you with that. Uh, thanks, everyone. This was really fun for me to work out as well. I hope it was fun for you to listen to. Uh, again, live show, New York, uh, in the Village. You can go down and, uh, and and you know it's not CBGB's, but it uh, may as well be because CBGB's isn't there anymore. Um, you know, caveat NYC. I hear it's a wonderful venue. I can't wait to go there and visit. Uh, I've, I've heard it described as a library basement, um, but in the coziest possible way. Um, bit.ly backslash no cartridge Benson or just google caveat nyc no cartridge i would really love to meet you there um and uh yeah i'd love for you to see me and scott talk about the all right um i will talk to you all very soon and thanks for waiting for me this week i really appreciate it